Good morning. Uh, today's uh, reading comes from Matthew chapter 14. Um, there's a slight revision. We're going to be reading from 22 to 33. And as Clive said, that's on page 981. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the privilege of looking at how your son reveals his divinity and at how this transforms the disciples. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now, that you will send your Holy Spirit to open our minds and to open our hearts to the truth of that word. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. We all love a good story, don't we? But what makes a good story? How do you know a good story when you hear one? Well, John Steinbeck, legendary American author, says this. If a story is not about the hearer, he will not listen. A great lasting story is about everyone, or it will not last. The strange and foreign is not interesting, only the deeply personal and familiar. Put another way, a good story is one in which I see me. Now, there are many good stories in the Bible. There are stories about people and their journey in faith. So, People like the apostles, like Paul, previously a persecutor. People like those on the fringe of society, like Matthew, previously a tax collector, and many more. Now those stories are all good because they give you a wonderful insight into the journey of faith that those people go through. And those insights help you to understand your own journey and your own place. So we can look at the lives of persecutors, we can look at the lives of prostitutes, of murderers, we can even look at the lives of the very respectable who once believed they were beyond reproach, and we can find ourselves in there 
somewhere. But some stories aren't just good, they are momentous. They are momentous. They're momentous because not only do we see ourselves through the story, more of ourselves through the story, but we also see more of God through the story. So I hope what you'll see in the passage today is that this story, which for some of us is maybe just a bit too familiar, is one of those. It is truly momentous. And it's momentous because we see how a disciple's faith is transformed through events entirely, entirely orchestrated by Christ. And it's momentous because we see who Christ really is. So we'll simply walk through the story step by step. And there are basically three steps. Firstly, we'll see Jesus orchestrating then we'll see Jesus revealing, and finally we'll see the disciples responding. So firstly, Jesus orchestrating. Now you'll remember from last week that the disciples have just seen Christ perform what Clive rightly called a miracle of creation, as was graphically depicted for us earlier on. A miracle of creation in which he feeds 5,000 men, as well as many more women and children besides, from a mere handful of food. And look at what then happens in verse 22 in our passage today. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately. There's no hesitation. Not then Jesus, but immediately Jesus. He wants them to hurry along. He made the disciples get into the boat. Now you can legitimately translate that word made as ordered or compelled. He brooks no dissent. They have to do this. They have to get in the boat. They have to do it now. And they have to aim for the other side. Matthew is conveying a sense of urgency in the story. He wants you to understand that Jesus Christ has an agenda and he's determined to move on to the next phase. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. It also seems that they are somewhat resistant and for good reason because evening is approaching and any experienced sailors like these were would need a very good reason to sail out into the Sea of Galilee at night, an 8 by 13 mile stretch of water, when dangerous winds can quickly pick up. But Jesus compels them, get into the boat and go. Now maybe they said, you know, well, why didn't you come with us? Did you come with us? But it seems he's intent on just sending them ahead on their own. You go ahead, he says. You go ahead, he might have said. I'll be along later, he might have said. Don't worry about me, you go. So off they go, verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. 
so he sets off across the lake. By the time evening comes, now that's between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., he's still there alone. By then, Peter and the others are way out on the lake. Now, Mark, in his account of the story, tells us that they were three or four miles from the shore, so a good way out, and they were struggling. They were being buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. Buffeted is a very strong word in the original. It carries a sense of being tormented, a sense of being tortured, a sense of being distressed. They were buffeted by the waves because the wind was against them. So it's rough. The winds are high, the sea is turbulent, the dark is coming, and they are getting anxious. And doubtless some of them are thinking, why on earth are we doing this? This is stupid. It's getting dangerous. Let's just go back. But to give them their due, they carry on. They persevere. So what does Jesus do while all this is happening? Nothing. He does nothing. Well, he is praying, but does he actively do anything to relieve their situation and to intervene? No, he does nothing. He just leaves them out there. He lets their situation deteriorate and get worse and worse. And we're not talking about a short amount of time. Verse 25, during the fourth, night, fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. The fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. They've been out there since before the evening started. They have been left out there being tormented from evening until at least 3 a.m., at least six hours, when he could have stepped in far earlier or even prevented the whole thing from happening in the first place. So that's their situation. They are put into danger and anxiety by Christ. They are left to seemingly flounder on their own, and they are wondering, why is this happening? Now, reading this after the event, it's crystal clear that Christ is orchestrating the whole thing. He hurried them along. He ordered them into the boat. He pushed aside any objections. He's done nothing to make their journey easier. On the contrary, he's left them to flounder in their anxiety. So from their point of view, there's a legitimate question. Why is he not doing something to fix this? Why is he not doing something to fix this? Now, I hope that strikes a chord with you, because it did with me. I hope it helps you reflect on any suffering that you, or someone close to you, might be going through right now because it's an, an entirely reasonable, actually it's an essential question. Why is he not doing something to fix this? It's an important question, especially if you're a Christian and you acknowledge Christ as your Lord. It's a big question. It's a, multi, it's a question with a multifaceted answer that we cannot go into right now, except to briefly note just one aspect that I'd like to highlight from a very credible source. And the source is Paul the Apostle. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, as someone who has suffered intensely, 
as someone who has ached and wept for others who are suffering, whom he loves, he simply says this, I consider, I sincerely believe, I'm utterly convinced, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing or a passing shadow when compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. The wonder, the majesty, the glory of God that will be revealed in Christ's disciples that we will experience will make every drop of suffering as fleeting as a shadow in the noonday sun. That, in part, is why Christ was orchestrating their situation. That, in part, is perhaps why he's orchestrating your situation and why he's letting it play out until the right moment. And that right moment is exactly what we see in the next few verses because the scene now moves on from Jesus orchestrating through to Jesus revealing. Verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now there are some really important details in this account that you must be careful not to miss. Notice that Matthew doesn't say that Jesus was walking toward them, which is our impression. He just says the disciples saw him walking on the lake. Mark, in his account, makes it clearer, and he adds this. He says, he was about to pass them by when they saw him walking on the lake. Why is Jesus walking on the water at all? Why not just calm the sea as he had done before? Why pass them by? It's a very unusual phrase. What's this all about? Is Mark really just saying that he was going to keep on strolling by with a casual, you know, morning as he went along? Is that the impression he's trying to give us? No. What you're seeing unfold is a series of acts which are not just miraculous interventions by God. What you're seeing unfold is a series of acts which are signs of identity. They are acts which tell you who this man really is. They are acts which typify the God of the Old Testament. When we see Jesus take control of the surging waves and calm them into a flat path and walk on them, it's to take us back to Exodus chapter 14 when God took control of the surging waves and parted the seas and let the Israelites through. When you see Jesus about to pass them by, it's to take you back to Exodus chapter 33 when Moses asks God, show me your glory... And God says, you cannot see me and live. And he puts Moses in a cleft in the rock and he passes him by. It's to take you back to 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah sees God pass by in a thundering, powerful, terrible, gentle whisper. 
It's the same unusual phrase. It's to take you back to Job chapter 19. Job in the middle of unimaginable suffering, surrounded by the graves of his children, in immense physical pain, being wrongly judged by his friends, says this, of God. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the creator, the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Could it be any clearer? It's God who treads on the waves of the sea. It's God who performs wonders that cannot be fathomed. It's God who passes me by. Apparently it can be clearer, because then, to dispel any remaining doubt, what Jesus does in verse 27 is he says, take courage, it is I, literally he says, I am, don't be afraid. Now, I am is a critically important phrase in the Bible. It's used in a number of ways by the Israelites, and we need to understand the context in which it's being used to know whether it's a greeting or to know whether it's an incredible claim. So, for example, God is commissioning Moses to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and it's a job that he feels ill-equipped for at best. So he asks God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now in that context, I am is God's expression of identity. It's his name. It denotes God as the self-sufficient one, as the one and only being who is not identified by reference to anyone else, but is identified only by reference to himself. We are not self-sufficient. We're contingent. We are of a type. We are human. We are man. We are woman. Ultimately, we exist only because God exists. Our existence is defined by reference to God because we're made by him and in his image, and we are dependent upon him. God's existence is not contingent. It's not defined by reference to or dependence upon any other being. He's entirely self-sufficient. He just is. The only being with a claim to the name I am is the self-sufficient God of all creation. That's why when Jesus on another, uh, on another time says to the Pharisees, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, they burst out in anger and they accuse him of blasphemy because they understood exactly what he meant. And it's similar here. When we see Jesus performing wonders that cannot be fathomed, 
when we see him control the wind and control the sea and walk across it, when we see him approach as if to pass them by, and when he says, take courage, I am, then we are seeing the one who gave Moses the courage he needed. We are seeing the one do what Moses and Elijah and Job knew only God can do. We are seeing the one exercise power and sovereignty that only God can exercise. And you are seeing Jesus reveal who he really is. You are seeing the sovereign God who upholds the universe in the boat with them. So we've seen Jesus orchestrating. And we've seen Jesus revealing, revealing who he, are, who he is. And that obviously begs the question, how do they respond? So let's look at the disciples responding. Now there's this little episode in Peter's life in verses 28 to 31, which is very revealing. But it's one we, we just very easily and very often get completely the wrong way around. So Peter impetuous Peter decides to boldly go where no man has gone before, steps out in faith onto the ocean, right? So he's bold, but there is a note of uncertainty. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter clambers down the side of what would have been a fairly sizable fishing vessel with the big sail, and he starts walking across the water toward Christ. Verse 30, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. He sees the wind, he sees the waves, he sees the spray, the snapping and cracking of the sailcloth, the roar in his ears. He starts to panic, and he thinks, what am I doing? And he starts to get wet from the bottom up. And he says, Lord... Save me. Now, who can honestly say we wouldn't have reacted in exactly the same way? I don't think I would have been the first over the side, but even if I was, I think my reaction would have been the same. But even as his faith weakens, what does he do? He does the right thing. He doesn't start frantically paddling and flapping his arms, right? He calls to Christ, Lord, save me, which he did. So as I said, it's easy for us to get this incident the wrong way around because we're so focused on ourselves, on our strength, on our ability, on the power of our faith that we look at the event and we focus on Peter and that's the wrong thing to do. That's to get it the wrong way around. The moral of the story isn't that Peter fails because he averts his gaze. The moral of the story is that Peter's failure doesn't matter because Jesus doesn't avert his gaze. As Peter started to sink, immediately Peter got his act together and caught himself. No, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? It's not about Peter. It's about Christ. It's not about what Peter did. It's about what Christ did. One of the commentators puts it very well. He says this. He says, To think that Matthew's account is meant to warn us against the dangers of a flickering faith is no minor mistake. 
you rob Christ of his proper glory and you deny the extent of his love. Jesus keeps his eyes on us even when we take our eyes off him. Our confidence isn't in who we are or in what we do. It's in who Christ is and in what he does. Jesus keeps his eyes on us even when we take our eyes from him. And the story carries on. Verse 32. When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. It's interesting that Christ doesn't quell the wind before Peter gets out the boat. He only does it when they're back in the boat. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now notice their reaction to everything that has happened. They've seen Jesus perform a divine miracle of creation with a feeding of 5,000 and more. They've seen Jesus control creation by calming the sea, stilling the wind, and striding across the waters in a way that only God can. And they've seen Jesus sustain Peter despite his flickering faith. And how do they respond? Do they applaud Peter for his courage? Well done, mate. Good grief. You must be nuts. Why did you do that? Do they discuss the amazing miracles? Did you see that? The wind just died. The sails are flapping, are no longer flapping. They're dead. Do they thank Jesus for calming the wind and the sea? No, they do exactly what Christ has anticipated when he orchestrated this entire day and night. And they respond precisely as he wanted in acknowledging exactly who he is. And they act accordingly. They confess truly, you are the Son of God. And for the first time in Matthew's account, the disciples offer Christ what must only be offered to God himself. They bow down and they worship the God-man. But the orchestration doesn't end there. It doesn't end there because God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit goes on to ensure that this story, this record that we've read and looked at, is preserved these 2,000 years so that you would be sat here with it in a book on your lap. Perhaps wondering why all that is happening to you is what is happening. William Cooper in his hymn, and if I'd had my act together, we would have sung it today, but I didn't, so I'll just read a part of it to you. William Cooper in his hymn puts it incredibly well, and he says this, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. The only question that is left for us to think about as you look back on the day and the night we've looked at, as you're faced with the reality of Christ, the Son of God, is whether you will respond like the disciples did 
and whether you too will bow down, confess, and worship. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we we honor you, we praise you, and we worship you as our Savior and our God. We thank you that we've had a small glimpse of your majesty, your sovereignty, your saving grace this morning. And so we pray again, Lord, that you would take this word that we have heard and that you would use it to draw us all into a state of grace and ever closer to you, our God. And we ask this in Jesus' name.